0: Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Catherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years. And hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there, everybody. I hope you all had a fun Thanksgiving holiday. The colder weather may be forcing us indoors, but it is the ideal time to cozy up by the fire with a good book. Today, we'll be talking with author Dorian Anderson regarding his wonderful new book about birding and finding sobriety. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Today we are speaking with Dorian Anderson, author of the brand new memoir, Birding Under the Influence, Cycling Across America in Search of Birds and Recovery. A highly accomplished neuroscientist, Dorian has reached a crossroads in his life. Does he want to continue his career at a prestigious university, conducting research at an unrelenting and unhuman pace? Or does he want to experience his full-out humanity, riding his bike and searching for rare bird species? Dorian follows his heart, choosing 12 months of bike riding and birding. Today he shares his adventures on the road, all 18,000 miles, as well as how he fell in love found nearly 700 rare bird species, and confronted his drug and alcohol demons. And now I'd like to introduce Dorian Anderson to the show. Dorian, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Catherine, I'm stoked to be here. This has kind of come together only in the last, I don't know, a week or 10 days around jury duty and other trips which I have planned. So this is awesome. I'm really stoked to be reaching out to a new host and hopefully a new audience as well.
1: I am so glad you could be on the show. I know you've got a very busy itinerary. So I just thought I would ask, you know, you've got this wonderful new book. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
2: Oh my God. This is like my whole life story. So basically, see if I can do this in a somewhat condensed fashion. I've been a lifelong birder and I started when I was a young kid, and we can come back to how I got into that later. But generally, like I don't know if any of you guys have seen the movie The Big Year or read any of these big year books that other birders have published. And those tend to be a recount of this very frantic year of birdwatching, which these folks have completed. And these adventures are a lot of fun where they're trying to find a lot of birds very, very quickly. And so the book is ostensibly about my big year, but I did it a bit differently in that I rode a bike to be carbon-free and also to kind of take money out of the equation. So I rode like 18,000 miles around the lower 48 states, biking, birding, blogging, photographing. And ostensibly, the book is about what I saw, did experience, thought about on that big year, including the challenges I ever came, the people that I met, the landscapes I encountered, so on and so forth. But in the background, what's happening is my history of birding, which is interrupted from age 15, 17 to 30 by alcoholism and my coincident rise through academia, ironic as it was, as I was doing lots of drugs and alcohol through that rise, the book uses the bicycle trip to explore and kind of dissect and understand my alcoholism that preceded my departure. So it has a lot of different touch points in the fact that it's kind of an adventure story about me being on the bike, and it has a lot of birds and a lot of environment and a lot of conservation in it. But it also has this personal backstory that includes substance abuse, a lot of science because That was coincident with my academic rise, and even a bit of romance because my girlfriend slash wife, as she morphs through the story, plays such a huge part in my development. Meaning specifically, my decision to get sober, and then eventually my decision to leave my career, which was really painful. So there were a lot of different touch points here, and I mean, whether it's somebody who's struggling with alcoholism, whether it's somebody who wants to get more involved with birds, whether it's somebody who's interested in the dynamic of the relationship with my wife, or whether it's somebody who just wants to like escapism of read about somebody riding a bike around the country. I think there's a lot of different touch points here. So there's a lot of moving pieces, which is why it's so difficult to kind of encapsulate it in one or two sentences.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, I think just about everybody we know has someone they love who struggles with alcoholism. Could you tell me, what was the point where you knew you had to do something different?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm a geneticist. So I'm a molecular biologist and developmental geneticist by training. I have a PhD and did that whole thing. So I could read the writing on the wall. I think that there is alcoholism in my family and I just denied it and denied it and denied it for a really long time. I was really good at school. I did fine. I did really well, even with all this stuff. So I didn't really have the professional or academic pressure on me, but I eventually basically lost the one person on earth who loved me more than I loved myself. And it was at that point that I said, you know what, like you haven't hit a rock bottom yet, but you've alienated people and you've hurt your health. You've hurt your finances. You've made some bad decisions, but if if you get out right now, you can catch yourself. And so I looked at my relationship at that time was the price I was going to pay for keeping all the other aspects of my life intact. And that was in my last year of graduate school at NYU that I made that decision But I'm really lucky in that I didn't hit a rock bottom and I caught myself. And it was because I got a wake-up call that was alert enough to listen to it and and not sleep or drink my way through it. I had flirted with disaster on a number of fronts a number of times, but I just did the math. Like I'm an analytical guy and it wasn't some huge emotional wrench. I just looked at it and I said, you know what, like. If I'm going to survive and thrive in any way, shape, or form moving forward, like this has to go right now. And I knew, I knew I was an alcoholic. I'd been to AA before and was like, this is for losers. And they went back out for three years and I'd been to alcohol counseling and stuff. And I was like, this is for losers. I don't need this. You have to lose enough and make enough mistakes before you realize it. And and the advice I give people who have friends and family who are struggling with this is it's really hard, but they have to learn the lesson for themselves you can support but you can't force people in a direction that they're not ready to go yet and so i think that it's a hard boat to be in to know when to offer help and when to kind of just say i have to let this person realize for themselves that they need to sort this out
1: i was going to say it sounds like right. this bike ride that you went on was a quest to save yourself
2: a little bit so i was i got sober right at the end of my phd and that precipitated a whole bunch of other problems because my my addictive tendencies redesigned on my work immediately and so in a field as uncertain as molecular biology where there's lots of frustration and technical difficulties and troubleshooting and trying to resolve incongruous data i kind of drove myself mad through the next 2 years and because my addictive tendencies redesigned on my work so quickly once i got sober even though i was sober i hadn't done any of the thinking about like how to heal or how to be happy or what I want out of my life. Like most people get sober and then they feel that stuff out. I just moved from drinking to like science with like no no breather. It was as unhealthy as was the drinking from a mental standpoint. And so it was when this idea for the bicycle big year popped into my head at about the same time that my research cratered for a number of reasons. i was like i need to shake up my life and i haven't spent any time thinking about like what i want out of my life and what makes me happy and how can i redefine success outside of the laboratory that i decided to take off with a lot of encouragement from my wife on this bike trip so the bike trip wasn't the mechanism through which i got sober but it was as i saw after the fact a necessary but delayed extension of my sobriety because as i said i took off about three basically four years after i got sober but Those three years in between, I was just too focused on work to comprehend what was going on. So the time on the bike is really what allowed me to digest some of the circumstances, decisions, and some of the insecurities that perpetuated and fueled my alcoholism for the 15, I guess it was like the 13 or 14 years where I was basically just abusing alcohol nonstop.
1: So was there any spiritual aspect for you to this ride?
2: There was not. And full disclosure, I'm not a terribly spiritual guy. I think that's part of the scientific background. But I think that what there was, was like this time alone and this headspace. So in some respect, that's the wrong way to say it. Like, yes, there was a spiritual aspect to it. There was not a religious aspect, but like the spiritualism of being on the bike and for so many hours a day, being by myself and having time to think about, as I said, these like past motivations, decisions, mistakes was really, really important. One of the decisions I made going into the bike trip was, and I had, I should mention, I had zero cycling experience before I took off on this adventure. The idea came out of a specific episode, which is recounted at the beginning of the book, but I had no cycling experience. So I had no idea what to expect. But one thing I did know is that I wanted to do the entire year, what I called inside my own head. So I didn't listen to any podcasts, any music, any news, anything the entire time that I was riding. And there was a practical side of that. If I wanted to be able to hear birds sing, so if I heard Black Chin Sparrow, I could stop and have a look at it. But there was also a a, a safety aspect if I want to be able to hear approaching vehicles and kind of know where I am in the landscape of of the traffic. But as I said, I wanted the challenge of of being in my own head without external programming for an entire year. And that was where I got to think about. I mean, there's a lot of counting of mileposts of, oh my god, this is so miserable. Why did I leave my career for this? But then there were these times when you got these idyllic rides and your mind could just totally wander and think about all this stuff that I just, I had just not put any head work into. Like I just kind of had this one vision for what I wanted out of my life. And that was to be a professor at a fancy school and have everybody think that I was the smartest guy in the room. And then once that vision started to cracks in that vision emerged, like I had to redesign my whole life. And so that's what that's what the bicycle trip did to me for me, and and I still ride my bike. And I think there there is some degree of like amount of spirituality when I'm riding. Like I just kind of get into a rhythm after a little while, and and let my mind go. And I can't do that with a lot of other things. Like the bike is how I do that now, and I get exercise, which is nice. So,
1: well, your story reminds me of an aborigine going on a walkabout for a year. It also reminds me of back in the 1500s, an abbess going to a monastery and locking the door, or not coming out for uh-huh. sometimes a year or longer. So that solitude. it just sounds like it was very healing for you.
2: It was. And it just, I think that I'm a really social guy and I feed off of the energy of other people. And, and at the end of the day, I'm a really insecure person. And so I love attention. And I think that one of the things that being on the bike helped me get my head around is like, get secure being insecure. And insecurity is not a problem if you recognize that in yourself and, and you know how to manage it and you learn how that manifests. Like I knew that I liked detention, but like now I understand why. I knew that I I wanted to be a professor at some fancy school. And yes, there was a lot of love of science in there, but a lot of it was I'm fundamentally insecure and I need to have like a positive label of like he's smart or like he's good enough put on me. And and now that I understand that, like I I can deal with it and I can manage it. Whereas before I was like, I don't want to think about it, I'm just gonna get hammered and I just delayed like all of this what I would call soul searching that the bicycle trip allowed. And the flip side of that was is that while i spent a lot of time alone i also got to interact with like an amazing and randomized cross-section of the united states so if you go hiking for instance the only people you knock into on the hiking trail are people who are similarly minded and fit because otherwise they wouldn't be on the hiking trail but i got to i knocked into so many crazy unique interesting people on whether it was like at burger king whether they Hit me on the road. I got hit in, by a car in Florida. Whether I sheltered in their garage, as I did to this woman in, in Colorado, and now I'm really good friends with her, whether it's other birders that I met along the way, like there were these incredibly long bits of solitude punctuated by these interactions with these amazing people that I met along the way. And, and so much of what I write about is the people that I met along the way. I think that this is where other big year books have. I spent a lot of time focused on the birds and like the bounty hunting aspect of it. Whereas like, I think the bicycle slowed me down enough to realize that there are all these other aspects to the big ear story and the people that I, to the non birder, the people that I met along the way are going to be so much more interesting than the birds. <laughs> and so it's a really interesting juxtaposition between the solo time and then the really social time that I had with all these wonderful, crazy, nutty, unique people that I met along the way.
1: So I have to ask, what did you do at night?
2: Where did you stay and where did you eat? So eating, basically the best thing about the Big Year is I could eat whatever I wanted. Like if I woke up in the morning, it was like, I want five waffles for breakfast. Like I had five waffles. And then two hours later, if I wanted an ice cream cone, had an ice cream cone and then a pizza and then four Whoppers for dinner and more ice cream after dinner. So I basically ate the worst quality food that America has to offer because I was broke. And the other issue is that when you have a bike with all of your stuff including your optics and your computer strapped to it you can't like leave it outside of a restaurant and go inside even if you lock the bike up somebody can take the bags off which is where the real value is and split so i had to eat it like fast food restaurants where i could lean the bike against the side of the window and then just like keep an eye on things as to where i stayed so this is a more interesting more interesting problem so the first thing I should mention is that my wife, Hannah, who works in corporate travel, she now works at Airbnb, had a conduit directly to some of the top people at Best Western. And Best Western at the time was trying to brand themselves as kind of the environmentally friendly hotel chain. And they had done a lot in terms of like asking guests to minimize water use and reuse towels and so on and so forth. And so my wife was like, then girlfriend, now wife would said, Hey, look, why don't you throw some room nights at my boyfriend and he can kind of ride around from your properties all around the country and give you guys some advice as to what might work better from an environmental standpoint and also like highlight some of the properties that he finds particularly fun as he rides around. So they gave me 6000 bucks in room credit. And that ended up breaking down to about $100 a night. So I spent about 60 nights, so one out of six nights, with Best Western. I get invitations from lots of birders to stay with them. And that was awesome because those people would roll out the red carpet. They cook me lots of food. They have tons of stories. A bunch of them even like would have friends over so I could like I told you I like attention, hold court with like a bunch of people at dinner. Because I had been at prep school in Connecticut, I had been at Stanford, I'd been at Harvard, and I'd been at NYU and Mass General Hospital, all institutions which draw not only from like all over the country, but all over the world. I had this like amazing network of people. Granted, mostly coastal in big cities but a lot of those people had grown up in the middle of the country and other areas or had kind of repatriated some of those states but i had this transcontinental network of people with whom i could stay and friends of friends facebook worked really well and then there's this amazing website called warm showers which is a network of traveling cyclists that are willing to house and feed one another as we move around the country and so i probably spent like 120 140 nights with warm showers hosts people that i'd never met that I just emailed and I'm like, I'm going to be coming through in two or three days. Can I crash with you? And sometimes that was like, I just slept on their couch and they're like, yeah, there's a pizza place down the street. And other times they're like, you can stay in the pool house for three days and swim in the pool and so on and so forth. And the empty nesters were the best because all the like maternal and paternal genes got turned back on. And they just wanted to cook me a big dinner and tuck me in and read me Good Night Moon and give me a warm glass of milk. So like the retirees, like the 60 to 70 year old retirees were awesome. Like they totally took the best care of me and put me up. It was awesome. And I decided not to camp for two reasons. One was that carrying all of the camping gear on top of all of the birding gear and the computer and hiking boots and laptop and chargers and cameras would have been too much. And also I kind of wanted to use the trip to of take america's pulse and it was really really interesting because no matter where i went like everybody wanted to take care of me i stayed with like some of the most liberal people i've ever met i've also stayed with some of the most conservative people i've ever met but the moral is that like everybody took care of me like yes there were some jackasses on the road who harassed me particularly in the south but everybody else like opened their doors up to me and fed me and housed me and let me wash at their place and so they not wanting to spend every night either in a tent by myself or in a hotel by myself really forced me to use my network and to use this warm shower stuff like i stayed i stayed with one family in new iberia louisiana like as deep south as it gets and as i said earlier i'm not a religious dude it's not my thing but i stayed with them and there were so many references to like god and jesus that i thought that like jesus might like walk in as if he was like one of their best friends and so i was like guys like we just started talking and i'm like like you guys realize i'm not religious like you figured that out but it's like what is it about like the cycling community that makes you guys be warm showers hosts? Because I haven't really stayed with a lot of really religious warm showers hosts this year. And they're like, honestly, it's because we're here in this really isolated part of Louisiana, and like, yeah, we live one way, but we think it's really important that our kids get at least some amount of outside influence. And I think that most cyclists tend to be pretty progressive and like they're environmental and. And so on and so forth. And so it was just a really interesting and unexpected answer from somebody basically just saying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like broaden my horizons. And, and in them answering that question, I was like, wow, you know what, like, it's really good that I'm staying with you, even though that I'm really different than you are. And so I think that that was a huge part of it was being able to interact with so many different people. And I think in a normal big year where you're flying around and you're staying in hotels and staying with other birders, you do miss a little bit of that, that contact with what I would call like middle America. And I think it was really good that I had that. And it was really humbling to have that in a couple of instances as well. So the housing problem ended up not being a problem. It was just, it was awesome. And I write about some of the amazing people that I stayed with and the, and the time and the conversations that I had with them.
1: That is amazing. Can you tell me one of your favorite bird encounters?
2: Yeah, so I think that, it's really notable that Snowy Owl was my first bird of the year. That is a really stunning bird. It is one of the most iconic birds on the planet. It's this gigantic white owl that lives in the frozen north. And a few of them make it to the lower 48 each year. But that year, there were a lot of them around, presumably due to food shortages, like across the Arctic and central Canada. So that was really cool, especially given that so many other big-ear birders have like battled and pulled out their hair trying to find that. I think the biggest thing with the bike was that it made me work really hard for birds that petroleum powered big ear birders or like recreational birds can find really easily. So white-tailed ptarmigan was a bird that gave me nightmares because it lives like above 12,000 feet in Colorado and there's nowhere to stay above like 8,500 feet in Colorado. So every time I wanted to look for that bird, I'd have to do it between town A and town B, but that would require like a 4,000 foot ascent on the bike up to that point. I'd be exhausted when I got there. And then I have to take off my biking shoes, stash my bike, put on my hiking boots, and then go walking up the mountainside onto the tundra looking for these things. And I I just kept yo-yoing over all these super high mountain passes for like three weeks, missing that bird every time I went up to high elevation before I finally got it. And sage-grouse was the same way, that that bird is really easy to get in the Western US during mating season because the birds have these really elaborate mating displays that unfold in very predictable areas, like at leks, which are kind of the same spot every year. And so to see those birds in normal big years, it's as simple as just driving to a lek, sitting in your car and like checking it off, but finding them in the summer when they're dispersed in a sagebrush habitat is really difficult and it took me a week to do it. And so I finally found it in outside of Vernal, Utah, and it was like a hundred degrees, almost died of heat stroke that day but having to work for the birds. And I think that that was the birds that I had to work the hardest for. Like like I said, ptarmigan, sage grouse, Pacific golden plover was another one. Rufus backed robin, I rode 300 miles out of my way to see what amounted to like one wandering bird. So that was was a real dice roll because that bird was from Mexico and had that one individual bird which was spotted the day before moved, I would have been riding for nothing. So I rode 305 miles, which is the same distance as like, Boston to Philly, St. Louis to Chicago, or Vancouver, British Columbia to Portland, Oregon, to see one bird. So those are the ones that stick out, the ones that I had to work the hardest to get.
1: Now that's dedication. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I ate well on those nights. I can tell you that. It was like a double pizza <laughs> kind of night. Yeah.
1: So now, where, were you following eBird to see other people's sightings of birds so you could close in on one particular bird? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. So I had, I used eBird a lot. It's such a good resource. And I think that. It's funny. I didn't eBird during my big year for two reasons. One, I hadn't spent a lot of time on eBird yet. Like I was a scientist before I took off on this bike trip. And that's like a whole nother aspect of this. But I didn't use eBird from around 2011 when I got sober and my birding interest kind of came back to 2013 because I didn't want my free time to be about data collection. Like my scientific data collection was, was so miserable at that stage that I didn't want to be like Collecting data when I was doing basically my my escape from collecting data. And I now regret all of that because eBird isn't so much about data as it is like keeping your own lists selfishly. And so I also didn't eBird my big year because like I said, I hadn't caught the eBird bug then. And there were just so many logistics that I needed to balance day to day that like eBirding everything I went was just too hard. But I did use eBird to find things. The other thing is that once word of my blog spread, lots of people contacted me with. What I would call more personalized information of like in eBird, you can see that there's a pin in a particular park, but then somebody'd be like, "You already know that there is uh, northern saw owl at Sherwood Island Park." But Tina Green in Connecticut was like, "Let me take you to the tree where it has been roosting for the past two weeks," and so she like escorted me out there and showed me the saw owl there. So I had a ton of help from local people, and the other things that I had, I had even though I had kind of this big break in my birding history, I was good at bird finding because I did a lot of it as a kid. And the interest after I got sober again had started to kind of claw its way back. So I was kind of getting back into the, into the swing of things. But eBird was a big help, rare bird alerts were a big help. And once I got moving, people just contacted me. So I got, I'd got i be in San Diego and I'd get a phone call from another part of the city being like, we just found X, Y, or Z, get on your bike and get over here. So once, once word got out, then the grapevine, like everybody kind of communicated with me directly, which was nice.
1: So now as we wrap up here, let's say what advice you would offer to someone who's struggling to stay sober and who's trying to find themselves. Do you have any advice you could offer them? If they're I thinking think about maybe doing what you're doing, like taking a trip.
2: Yeah. Like that's one way to do it is to kind of like, I'm an addict, an alcoholic addict, and I can't deny that. And I don't get to change that about myself. Like some of that is genetics, Some of it is personality, but I do get a choice to, to what I'm addicted. And so I think that one of the bits of advice that I will offer people struggling is let yourself be an addict, but just find something else that you can be as passionate about as alcohol and or drugs. And birding for me was the kind of like logical thing. And I didn't have to think about it. It's just like my addictive personality just as I got sober, it just completely redesigned on my work originally and then more healthily on birding. So I think that that's what you need to do is you have to find something else on which you can like let your addiction demons chew. Because if you just like try to deny them, then you're going to end up back where you started. And that's what happened to me the first time around. The other thing I will say is my first stint in AA I made it like 38 days. And I don't think anybody goes to AA being like, I'm so stoked to be here in AA. I can't wait to tell everybody that I'm in AA. Like, that's not how it works. Like, you go there because you've been beaten down. You go there because you're ashamed. You go there because you feel like a loser. Like, you go there because enough stuff is wrong that you realize you need to do something about it. But despite all that stuff, you have to tell other people, like, outside of AA about what you're doing. Like, I enjoyed being at AA. But the reality was, is that my sobriety was like locked away for the other 23 hours of the day because I didn't include friends, family, and coworkers in it. So if I had included more people in it, as I did the second time around, and I'd be more open about it, then maybe my first dinner sobriety would have lasted longer and or stuck. But... I think that like you have to know that there are people out there who care about you no matter like how badly you've pissed people off like what mistakes you've made what pain you've caused other people there are people out there who care about you and are willing to support you if you can make the commitment to making an honest effort at sobriety and getting clean and and if you include those people in it then they provide not only support, but also accountability. Like that's why you get a sponsor in a, that's why I failed today, A the first time around. Cause I like rejected the idea of a sponsor because subconsciously, I think not even subconsciously, I didn't want that accountability. So I think that those are the two things it's like enlist friends and family and colleagues as support and find something else into which you can throw yourself. And for a lot of people that ends up being fitness. And that's a logical thing. Cause it's something over which you have control. And it's like, I always joke with people that the bike was funny because like when I was drinking, I'd beat the hell out of myself at night and then like recover in the lab during the day. But when I was riding, it was the opposite way. I beat the hell out of myself during the day and like had to recover at night. And there is some, I imagine, underlying psychology to the need to like beat yourself up a little bit. And that a lot of us alcoholics have not only like genetic predispositions, but like psychological contributing factors. And there's always this feeling of like I'm not good enough, like I don't deserve to be sober. I don't deserve support, but you do. And you just have to enlist people to help you get it. And then take all that that frustration and anger and resentment that you harbor towards alcohol and put it into something else and channel it into something productive.
1: I'd like to thank Dorian Anderson for joining us today. You can find out more about Dorian by going to his website at the thespeckledhatchback.blogspot.com. And you can order his book, Birding Under the Influence, by going to amazon.com.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the One-Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One-Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.